when people are moving from one house to another or one apartment to another, there's a, a set of fairly predictable responses that you'll hear them say. Maybe you could help me fill in the gap. The last blank here. They'll say something like, we have way too much stuff, yes. Or they'll say, we're never doing this again. It's way too much work, right? It's like you could, you could go down the list and it's predictable. You've heard it said, maybe you've said it yourself. I remember one time we were moving and um, we were thinking the same thing. We're, we're never doing this again. So what, what I did is I took vacation that day and we moved some of the smaller stuff, the boxes, during the day so that when our friends got off work and could help us load up the truck, we just had the big stuff and the furniture and all that left. Well, by four o'clock in the afternoon, we were starting to kind of finish up what we were doing and ready to get a, a recharge. So we took a dinner break and went out to eat and then went back to the first house and started to meet the crew there and get the truck ready and all of that. And we, we loaded up, we went over to the new house and started to carry stuff in. And when I walked in, something smelled a little funny, but I didn't think too much of it because there was so much work to do, to do and I was you know, sort of locked in. I was like, hey, we, we are focused here. And, uh, and one of my friends said to me, hey, that's Mer-Captain. And I said, it's, it's Mer-what? And he said, it's Mer-Captain. He said, that's the stuff they put in natural gas to smell bad so that you can know if there's a gas leak in your house. I said, oh, that's not good news. Turns out natural gas is odorless, and so they put this other thing, Mer-Captain, in it so that if there's a gas leak, you can smell it in it and know about it. And one of my other friends chimed in and said, yeah, make sure you don't turn the lights on because even the spark of a light switch can ignite and blow up the entire house. <laughs> now they really had my attention. We haven't owned this place for 24 hours yet, and this is really turning into an interesting affair. Hope it's not going to be a shocking experience. <laughs> so we got on the phone and... Um, and I called the fire department, and then we called the gas company. We're trying to figure out, like, what's going on? How bad is this gas leak? And three, four fire engines come barreling through the uh, neighborhood. It's a grand way to meet your neighbors on the very first day you're moving in. And, and they came and checked it out. And long story short, there was not a big problem at all. It had been just very minuscule amounts of natural gas that had leaked out, and it was not a big deal. The crisis was averted. Apparently, what had happened is before we went out to dinner, I had bumped into one of the knobs on the stove, and it just turned it just a fraction, and just a little bit had started to leak out. And so we got it closed off, turned out the knob was broken, and somehow the inspection had missed that, and we got it all cleaned up. It wasn't a big deal. Um, but the point of telling the story is this. It took some people paying close attention to what this particular smell meant, and knowing we got to take action on that, because if we don't, the consequences could be dire. And it didn't seem like a very big deal to me. It was like, well, it just smells a little funny in the house. But it was no laughing matter. It wasn't something to be played around with. And Paul, in a similar way, is making a point like this in 1 Timothy 4, to say, hey, look, guys, we have to pay attention to things that are a really big deal that may not seem like a huge deal to you, but if you don't deal with these, there are absolutely dire consequences. He's talking about false teaching, starting in small ways, and some of the fallout that comes after it. So the way we want to structure our outline this morning is to ask four questions about false teaching. Four questions about false teaching, saying, should false teaching surprise us? Ask, where does false teaching come from? Ask, what does false teaching look like? And then lastly, what should we do about false teaching? 
I think the passage walks through each of these, so I don't intend to comprehensively answer every single thing you could say about false teaching, but rather to say, what does Paul say in 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 5 about false teaching, and expose the meaning of the text and help us apply it to our lives. So we'll start with the first question. Should false teaching surprise me? I hope you've got your copy of God's Word open. We'll look back to it frequently, but look at verse 1, what Paul says. He says, now the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. So the short answer to the question is no, false teaching should not surprise you. The fact of the matter is ever since the creation of the world, earth has been the battleground between God and Satan. The distortion of God's word began in the Garden of Eden It's been through demonic activity that that distortion took place, and it has continued ever since. Now, we don't know precisely what passage Paul is speaking of when he says, now the Spirit expressly says in later times, he doesn't give us a little footnote for which one he had in mind, but perhaps he had in mind the words of Jesus. Matthew chapter 24, verse 11, he says this, many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. That's what Jesus said. This warning about false teaching was not new even to Paul. Acts chapter 20, a passage we've referenced many times in this series, when he was in Ephesus and leaving these elders, this church, here's what Paul said some years previously. After my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from your, among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. So what this means is when false teaching shows up, we're expecting it. We're saddened by it. We need to respond to it, but we're not shocked by it. And we recognize and we realize that false teaching will impact those closest to us. It's going to impact sometimes those in our families. It's going to impact people that we've sat in the pew with, perhaps for years, where they're led astray. So the beginning of this passage is, in a, is a call to awareness. It's a call to vigilance, to be searching the scriptures daily on your own. As Acts chapter 11 says in commending the Berean church for searching the scriptures daily to say, is this actually true? That's how we take this and put it into practice and application right away. There, will, there are some that will take 1 Timothy 4.1 and say, well, this verse teaches that your salvation can be lost because it says that some will depart from the faith. I want you to know that's an incorrect interpretation of this passage. In this context, that word depart from the faith is, well, it's not, sorry, let me start over that. Not this context. The word phrase depart from the faith is where we get our English word apostasy or apostate. same, Same idea there, same words. In this particular context, what it's referring to is those who no longer profess Christian faith, those who no longer associate themselves with Christian faith, but it's not saying that someone had salvation and then lost it. In other words, they talked the talk for a while, and then they departed, but they were never actually genuine believers. John chapter 10 and verse 28 helps to clarify by this doctrine of eternal security. Once God saves you, your eternal destiny is secure. It will never be lost. Jesus says here in John 10, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Some will hear that and say, 
well, I understand that no one can snatch you out of God's hand, but perhaps you could remove yourself from God's hand. In essence, handing back the gift of salvation, saying, I don't want this anymore. In which case, we would go to Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6, where we read, He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. That God began the work of salvation in you. He's doing the work of saving you and making you more like Jesus. And he will be faithful to bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. In other words, to say that I could lose my salvation would be to say that I am stronger than God because he's promised he'll be faithful to bring it to completion. This leaves us then asking the question, well, how do we make sense of people who professed Christian faith, they seemed to walk with us for a time, they were involved in the church, and then walked away? How do we make sense of those who in the modern language have deconstructed their faith? What do we do with that? I want to say that seasons of doubt and struggling and trying to figure out how is God at work here, those seasons are normal and expected in the life of the believer. That's not what I'm talking about when we say they're walking away, they're going through a difficult season of suffering and asking God, how can this be? No, what we're talking about here is utter rejection of Jesus as the Christ and walking away from him. And 1 John chapter 2 and verse 19 is a key passage to help us understand how do we make sense of those who have deconstructed and walked away. Here's what it says. You see it on the screen. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. In other words, when, the, when people walk away, when they deconstruct, what John's saying is this is evidence that they were never truly saved in the first place. They might have talked a good talk, but there was no genuine faith. There was no genuine conversion at any point. They were prof uh, professors of Jesus. They professed him, but they didn't possess Jesus. This doctrine of eternal security is sometimes called once saved, always saved. Maybe you've heard it said that way, and I think that's accurate, but it would be better to say, once saved, always following. Those who are truly saved will always be following Jesus. This first question, should we be surprised by false teaching, brings us around to say, no, we shouldn't be surprised. We should expect it. We should pay attention. We should be vigilant, and we should begin to investigate where does this false teaching come from if we're not to be surprised by it. And that brings us to our second question. Where does false teaching come from? Let's look back at God's word. Starting in the second half of verse 1, here's where false teaching comes from. It comes from those who are devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. And when we think about false teaching and apostasy, deconstruction, people walking away from the faith, we have a certain set of predictable sources that we go to. Here's where this comes from. We often think, well, this came from being exposed to sophisticated university professors, or this came from listening to false religious teachers, or from paying too much attention to the wrong social media influencers. I think these are the predictable sources that we point to. 
I want you to know, friends, on the basis of 1 Timothy 4, false teaching and apostasy and deconstruction do not come from these sources. They come from demonic attack. That's exactly what the end of verse 1 says, from deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons. And the rest of Scripture confirms this. 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 8, we read, Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He prowls around like a roaring lion seeking to devour you. And how does he do that? Through lies. Through inserting lies gently into your mind, believable lies to lead you astray. This is what John chapter 8 tells us, verse 44. When he, that being Satan, lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar, and he is not only a liar, he's the father of lies. That's how he seeks to lead you astray. That's how he seeks to devour you, to get you to believe lies. And so Christian, listen to me. If you're not a Christian, listen to me. You've got to understand, this morning, Satan is prowling around, hoping that you will not detect him in your life. He's seeking to plant lies in your mind that will devour you. There's a battle for your heart today, right now. And there are some cultures that we might say give maybe too much attention to the teaching of demons and spiritual warfare, spiritistic-type cultures, where just everything gets attributed to that. But I don't think that's us. I think more often than not, we don't see them, we don't see spiritual warfare happening in front of our eyes, and so with our spiritual life, we functionally deny the existence of demons. On a doctrinal exam, we wouldn't say they don't exist, but when it comes to our day-to-day living and the way we ask for the Holy Spirit's help, we act as if spiritual warfare isn't real, as if Satan isn't prowling around like a roaring lion seeking to devour us on a daily basis. Maybe think of it this way. Emily and I have found a show on the Discovery Channel we like to watch. It's called Homestead Rescue. Does anybody watch Homestead Rescue? A few of you. Okay, so they, the show works where they, they find these people that have gone out to try and live off the grid. They create a homestead, you know, out in Canada or Montana or Wyoming or some such nonsense. And... Uh, it's not going well for them, right? They've not accounted for a water source or they don't have a food source or power or something like that. And so they call in the experts who come on site for seven days and they do a homestead rescue. And one of the most frequent things they'll see is their food source gets eaten up by predatory animals. And so they had, you know, 40 chickens and a dozen goats and now they're down to like two chickens and a goat and they're wondering why this isn't working out so well for them. And so the experts come on site and they're looking around, figuring out what's going on. And they look to the side of the house and there's, you know, oftentimes trees or a stump or something because they're out in the middle of nowhere and there's these claw marks on it. And they'll say, do you see what this is? There's a 130-pound mountain lion prowling around your home at night, putting its claw marks right on this stump that's six feet from your child's bedroom. Do you see this? Did you know the mountain lion was right there? And they're looking at each other just terrified, of course, no idea, right? And they say, yeah, he's marking his territory and he's coming for you next. You've got to pay attention. So, husband, I know you're used to shooting that shotgun. Wife, you got to start practicing during the day because you're in serious danger right now. And all of a sudden, their perspective switches. They say, we're in serious danger. There's a mountain lion coming for us and has marked his territory six feet from my house. Friends, that's you every single day in the spiritual life. Satan is coming for you, and you can pretend like he's not there, but he is. 
and he's clawing for your soul, seeking to get in in a way that you don't recognize him, and he wants to take you down. Or, in the words of Genesis 4, 7, where Cain is tempted to do evil to his brother, we read, sin is crouching at your door and its desire is for you. It's the exact same principle being explained. So let's just think practically about this. When Saturday night runs late for you, do you realize that Satan is prowling around like a roaring lion, seeking to devour you, telling you, it's not that big a deal if you skip church today. Gathering with God's people is pretty optional, actually. We've got good technology. You can do it online. When your company starts to talk about layoffs, do you realize that there's a battle for your soul where Satan is prowling around like a roaring lion, seeking to get your attention and say, your value and your worth is in the money that you can make and the production you do at that company and the value you bring there. And you're not going to be able to provide for your family and God won't be there for you. There's a battle for your soul where Satan is seeding lies into your head. When your spouse is too busy for you, do you realize there's a battle for your soul going on? Satan is prowling around, dropping lies into your head, telling you it's been this way for a very long time. They're not that interested in you. Dropping lies of a better spouse, someone who would care for you in better ways and actually be there for you. There's a battle for your soul every single day. In interpersonal conflict of any shape, do you recognize there's a battle for your soul where Satan wants to devour you? And yes, there's an element where you need to hear what the other person is saying, and they need to hear what you're saying and how you've been talking past each other. But Satan's goal in that is that you would be destroyed, that you would think evil thoughts of your brother or sister, that you would be selfish and arrogant, that you would not listen, that you would not be humble. That's what he's after. You've got to recognize, friends, that spiritual warfare is real, that sin is crouching at the door, and there's a demonic battle going on right now for every single soul in this room. And Paul goes on to explain the process in verse 2. Excuse me, verse 2. He says, it's through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. He paints the picture of someone who looks one way in public, but privately they're very different. They're hypocrites. Hypocrite's not someone who stumbles along the way, who professes, I'm this way, when they know that they're not. And perhaps you think of prominent evangelical leaders who've fallen, maybe a, a Ravi Zacharias, or a James McDonald, or a Mark Driscoll. But rather than looking at others, I want to encourage us to pick up the mirror of Scripture and point it back at ourselves and say, how might this be me today? And friends, let me tell you, by far, the most important step, the most important step in this process towards your own departing from the faith is that you get comfortable giving a deaf ear to your conscience. You must not get comfortable doing that. Let me say it this way. You cannot imagine how much good it will do for your soul to simply resist the next temptation. To simply say, I will fight and resist the next temptation. I will listen to my conscience here. It's good to think of your conscience like an alarm clock. 
Imagine you've got an interview for your dream job at 8 o'clock one morning. Your alarm clock is set for 6 a.m. When that thing goes off, there's no chance you're hitting snooze. In fact, most likely you've been tossing and turning all night and you woke up at 5.30 well before your alarm clock went off. You're alert, you're paying attention, you're vigilant. But when you begin to treat your conscience like a Saturday morning alarm clock, friend, you are in grave, grave danger. Snooze is not an option when it comes to your conscience. And in the book of 1 Timothy, this is the fourth time that Paul has already referenced the conscience. It's incredibly important to heed your conscience. Look at these couple of passages already. 1 Timothy 1 and verse 5. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience. That's the aim. 1 Timothy 1, verses 18 and 19, Paul urges Timothy, he says, Timothy, wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 9, speaking of deacons, he says, they must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. By far, the most important way you guard against false teaching and apostasy in your life is to fight for your conscience and to listen to it and to heed it and to not treat it like a Saturday morning alarm clock. Pastor and author Phil Riken says it this way, a Christian who grows comfortable with sin is well on his way to becoming a heretic, while a tender conscience preserves orthodoxy. Maybe that feels a little bit overstated to you, that not listening to your conscience leads to heresy. But this is precisely what 1 Timothy 4 tells us, that careful introspection is essential. And if I could go back to the opening gas illustration of the gas leak, maybe it felt overstated for somebody to say, the whole house could blow up if you merely turn on the light switch. Isn't that being a little caustic? Friends, just this morning I read an article about a guy in New Jersey who had a gas leak in his house, and he turned on the lights, and the whole thing did blow up. And at the moment he turned on the lights, it blew him 15 feet outside the house and 50% of his body received severe burns. Now on the basis of that story, will you take me more seriously if there's a gas leak in your house? You should. And on the basis of 1 Timothy 4, will you take listening to your own conscience more seriously? You should. This is where false teaching and apostasy comes from. That brings us to our third question. What does this false teaching look like? What does false teaching look like? We look at verse 3. Here's what we read. It's from those who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Now, I need to tell you, when I was studying this week, I was a little surprised by this verse. It caught me off guard. Paul has this grand buildup. Teachings of demons insincerity of liars, conscience is seared. And it feels like he's going to lead into this monumental teaching about those who like deny the deity of Christ or deny that Jesus was born of a virgin. Like it feels like a big buildup. And then he says, yeah, those who require abstinence from foods and forbid marriage. Like it kind of feels like a letdown, doesn't it? I thought you were going to say something bigger, Paul. But the point is to recognize that false teaching and apostasy, they start with subtle lies. We know that Satan's favorite tool is deception, and when he can layer deception with certain elements of the truth, well, that is certainly his specialty. 
He loves that. And there's many kinds of lies that he spreads, but the ones in this particular passage are what we call lies of asceticism. Now, asceticism may not be a word you're familiar with, but here's what it means. It means this, an approach to living that renounces many comforts of the material world and practices rigid self-denial. That's what Paul's talking about, these kinds of lies. And we're, we're not sure of all the details of Paul's situation, why exactly was marriage being forbidden, why exactly was abstinence from certain foods being required. We're not told that, but it's really easy for us to see how these lies could gain traction. Because when you see somebody uh, withholding certain material comforts of this world in the name of their Christian faith, they look really disciplined. They look really serious. Like, wow, they're the committed ones. They must be like the next level Christians that go to the gym every day. In fact, that's the error that the Colossian church had embraced, that that was what serious Christians looked like. Paul wrote to them as well about this, Colossians chapter 2 and verse 23. He said, these indeed have indeed appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. You hear his caution there? It looks like these are the superstar Christians, but this asceticism has no value in withholding and stopping the indulgence of the flesh. This school of thought is actually, throughout church history, what led to the monks in the monasteries. Hey, let's get away from every single worldly pleasure, and then we'll be closer to God. And in today's terms, we see this being manifested in a whole host of ways. You might hear it and saying, well, I've gone closer to God because I've renounced rap music or rock music or alcoholic beverages or I've just stopped watching TV shows or movies or I don't ever let my kids go out on Halloween to trick-or-treat or any sorts of things like these. Now, hear me balance that out. There is absolutely wisdom in withdrawing from some of these activities and full-throttled indulgence in all of them is certainly a bad thing. Or to hear the balance on both sides of that. But the danger is that there are entire Christian tribes, groups of people that create an identity around, we would never let our kids read Harry Potter, or no good Christian would ever smoke a cigar, or only compromisers watch The Office, <laughs> and you build a whole identity around this thing. Friends, these are issues that require what we call liberty of conscience. And when we talk about liberty of conscience, what we're saying is these are issues that God has not explicitly spoken to. You don't have a chapter and verse that says, you must not do this, or you must do this. And so we expect that different Christians will have a conscience that's calibrated a little differently than ours and may land in a different place than ours. And that's an easy thing for me to say, or perhaps you to say in principle, but history shows us it's remarkably difficult to actually put it into practice. And as if history wasn't clear enough, the New Testament has tons of examples of churches struggling to embrace liberty of conscience. We know the Corinthian church struggled there. Paul writes to them about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. We know the church at Rome struggled here. Paul writes to them in Romans chapter 14. We know the Ephesian church struggled here. Paul writes to them, as we see today in 1 Timothy chapter 4. We know the Colossian church struggled here. Paul wrote to them in Colossians chapter 2 on this topic. 
And if it's pervasive in the early church, then our expectation should be this. It will be really difficult for me to be gracious to those who have a conscience that's calibrated differently than mine. That should be my expectation. And I think the next logical question then is this. When do I go from wise abstinence and cross the line into legalistic false teaching? How does that happen? How do, how do I know that I've missed the boat here? And I would propose a simple formula. where it's Think of it this way. When I say that what's wise for me is mandatory for you, I've crossed that line. When I say what's wise for me is now mandatory for you, I've crossed that line. Paul says this is destructive for your soul and will result in heretical teaching. And when he says that it's destructive to your soul and results in heretical teaching, sometimes we're tempted to think in broad religious terms and think of religions that started with a right focus on good works and then ended up with salvation by good works. Or we think of denominations that started with a good emphasis on believer's baptism and ended up with salvation by baptism. And those may be examples of that, but I do believe the greater danger for us lies in each of our own souls. Look at the end of verse 3 again carefully with me. He says, These things are to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. They know the truth and they believe it. What truth? What's contained, I believe, in the preceding verses that we looked at last week in referring to the mystery of godliness being great, that Jesus was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. The truth that as a Christian, your righteousness is in Jesus and his finished work and his perfect life, not in what you do or in what you don't do. And when I say what's wise for me is now mandatory for you, this can easily become a way of becoming self-righteous. Where I say, I'm now the righteous one because I do this thing or don't do that thing. And of course, we don't verbalize it that way. Like, I've never heard someone say to me, Justin, I believe I'm a Christian because I've sworn off of rated R movies. No one's ever said that to me. But what can quickly happen in Satan's lies as he's prowling around like a roaring lion. He's saying, I define my goodness based on these things I haven't done or I have done or my own spiritual self-discipline instead of basing my righteousness on Jesus is the righteous one. His perfect life makes me acceptable to God, not my own spiritual white knuckling. I once read John Piper who said the following, He said, legalism has brought more people to eternal ruin than alcoholism. This is from a man who does not ever touch alcohol because he believes the dangers are so great. But he recognizes that one error of alcoholism is plainly obvious, and you see the destructive elements all over our world, whereas the other is far more subtle and insidious. And it destroys your soul from the inside out before you realize what has happened. And that's why Paul warns about it here in 1 Timothy 4. The larger point then that Paul is making is that false teaching and apostasy, they start in very small errors that have very dire consequences. 
And it brings us to our fourth and final question. How then should I respond to false teaching? How should I respond to false teaching? Verses 4 and 5 in our passage give a sharp twist in the focus. Up to this point, it's been a largely negative tone, and Paul shifts and gives a more positive tone. Here's what you proactively should do. Starting in verse 4, we read, For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. So Christian, you must recognize that God's word defines the parameters for what can be received with joy and gratitude. You need to recognize that God's word makes God's gifts holy. You might say suitable for use. God's word is the standard. So you think of a vehicle. A car is a good gift, receive it with joy. But scripture says to submit to the authorities. And so you receive it with gratitude and joy while submitting to the rules that they've placed as far as how it's registered and how fast you drive. We recognize that money is a good gift. It's to be received with joy, and you can use it to do all kinds of good in the world. And that Scripture defines the parameters that generous giving is normal for the Christian. That's part of every single Christian's discipleship and following Jesus. You recognize that alcohol may be consumed in moderation as a good gift and received with joy and gratitude. And at the exact same time, the, uh, the Bible is abundantly clear on the evil and the wickedness of drunkenness and the dangers that come from it. We recognize that sex in the context of marriage can be received with joy and with gratitude. And the Bible is abundantly clear on the wickedness of sex outside of marriage. But sometimes we come to issues where we aren't exactly sure what does the Bible say on this? It's not as clear on some issues as on others. Is this okay? Should I receive this with joy? Or not really, not so much. And this is where we lean into the gift of God's word and the gift of God's church. I previously referenced Acts chapter 11, where we're called to be Bereans, to search the scriptures and see if this is true. I would urge you I would urge you to seek biblical answers on these questions, not just someone who says, this seems to make sense to me. In the words of Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 12, I would say this. On the screen, we see it. We must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. We must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. Friends, this is why one of the main things I am encouraging and pushing on a regular basis is that in discipling relationships, you simply gather and read God's Word. I've benefited greatly from a whole host of Christian authors, but none of them are inspired and all of them are fallible. And one of the ways you pay much closer attention to what you've heard so that you don't drift away from it is when you gather with other brothers and sisters, you make it a regular habit of opening up God's Word and reading it and talking about it. Look back at the end of verse 4 with me for just a moment. We read that these things are to be received with thanksgiving. Received with thanksgiving. So what are you supposed to do with these gifts? You ask, can I receive it with thanksgiving? Can I pray over it and be grateful for it? We recognize that gratitude is a central part of the Christian life. It's repeated twice in this passage. 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 18 states the point very clearly and poignantly. It says, give thanks in 
all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Christian, do you want to know the will of God? It's not lost, it's not hidden, and it's not a secret. Give thanks in all circumstances. I hope you'll come back tonight for our Thanksgiving prayer service. We have the chance to publicly give thanks to God and express gratitude for a whole host of good gifts. We'll have an open mic opportunity, and I hope you'll be here. But we recognize this, that gratitude isn't optional for the Christian. If you aren't grateful, you aren't godly. It's very straightforward. And so in practical terms, what does it look like to live out the truth that everything is created good and to be enjoyed if it can be received with gratitude, made holy by the word of God in prayer? Practically speaking, how do I do that? And I would urge you to go through this, this exercise. You ask yourself, can I pray over this gift and receive it with gratitude in view of my conscience and scripture? You see, praying with gratitude will require you to see the giver, God, as more significant than the gift. And if you have idolized the gift or wrongly prioritized the gift, then it will also be revealed to you in that way. So think of it this way. I can get a bowl of peanut butter ice cream at night, sit down to eat it and say, Lord, thank you for the good gift of peanut butter ice cream. I love peanut butter ice cream. I feel like I'm tasting your goodness in this bowl of ice cream. Thank you, Lord. And I can receive it with thanksgiving. I can't pray that prayer on my third bowl of peanut butter ice cream that night. <laughs> because my conscience won't let me. I know I've entered into gluttony at this point. I'm just stuffing my face. Or I can pray over an opportunity to go shopping. At the golf store, of course. But maybe you want to go to Kohl's or to the fashion mall or wherever and say, Lord, I thank you for the opportunity to go and to have some money to spend and buy some of these things. It's a good gift that I have a vehicle that will get me there and we get to have all these choices and fun things to look at and buy some stuff that I'm going to enjoy. Really hard to pray a prayer of gratitude when I know I'm spending money that my family doesn't have and we're just racking up credit card debt and credit card debt and credit card debt. I can indulge the flesh, but I can't pray a prayer of gratitude while doing that. I can pray over a good book I'm reading and praise God for the gift of, whether it's Christian living or just a novel that I enjoy greatly. Lord, thank you for this good book. I am enjoying this. This is refreshing to read. I can't pray that prayer of gratitude over the gift if my kids are stressing me out and I'm hiding in the bathroom so I don't have to see them and calling it reading a book. <laughs> right? You understand how this works. Can I pray over this gift, thanking the Lord for the gift, with a clear conscience and in view of Scripture? I might go to a Pacers game. And say, Lord, I thank you for the good gift of getting to go to a Pacers game. I love watching the Pacers. And I thank you that you've given me a job where I can buy these seats that I enjoy. But it's going to be really difficult to pray that prayer of gratitude for these tickets at this Pacers game if I know I'm skipping out on my tithes and offerings so I can fund this fun thing. It's difficult to pray that prayer to God. You see, a simple prayer of saying, Lord, thank you for this good gift. And can you pray that with a clear conscience and in view of Scripture? This is what it means to say that God's good gifts are made holy by the Word of God in prayer. They're made suitable for use. And maybe you hear me say it and you think, Justin, that just sounds tedious. Like lots of prayers throughout the day I'm not used to. Well, it does mean that you're going to pray more than before meals. So if that's the only rhythm, it is going to be more than that. But friends, I think there's much deeper joy that God intends for us in His gifts. 
them to be made holy by the word of God and prayer. You know, at the beginning, I was talking about moving into this house and the gas leak and all of that. I did learn a lot about my house that day. But I went, when I went to bed that night, let me tell you, I slept really, really good. I had a sense of physical safety because the guys had been out to check on it and said, yeah, there's no, there's no gas in your house anymore. It's all good. And there was mental safety. I could sleep calmly, slept like a baby, actually. And I would simply say about the gift of my house being free of gas, God intends his gifts to be enjoyed by his children as well. He wants you to enjoy them and to sleep soundly. And if we'll do the work of testing ourselves and the enjoyment of the gifts, we can enjoy the giver more than the gifts and enjoy the gifts as well and be led to worship to the God who gives all good things that we may freely enjoy them and enjoy him more than the gifts. Let's pray.